Welcome to season four of the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. I'm Lola Dada Ali. We are glad to have you back for another season where we continue to showcase stories of people within and those associated with the autism and disabled communities. In this episode, I speak with an advocate passionate about improving the lives of others around the world, but particularly in Nigeria where she resides. She's an advocate, published author, businesswoman, wife, and mother of two children who are the subject of her popular set of children's books. One of her children, her younger one, her daughter, has Down syndrome. Tonye Falugi Ekezie is a force of nature. She is many things. Among those already listed earlier in this episode, she's also a filmmaker and a soon-to-be podcast host. At the time we originally spoke, her podcast was not yet launched. But by the time this episode airs, at least one episode should be published. So please be on the lookout for the Special Moms Africa podcast focused on real conversations in the world of parenting children who are either neurodivergent and or disabled. Tonya and I recently sat down to discuss not only her upcoming podcasts, yes, I said plural, podcast. There's also another one in the works tied to the disabled and neurodivergent communities that has a yet-to-be-determined launch date. So keep out for that as well, FYI. Tonya and I talked about those early days in her daughter's diagnosis, how it affected her family, stigma attached to these diagnoses from an African perspective, and how she incorporates her personal life into her professional life and vice versa. So with that in mind, let's get started. Welcome to the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. I am sitting here with the illustrious Tonye Falogi Ekezie of Lagos, Nigeria. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> For joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I have, I'm trying to remember exactly how we met. We have a mutual friend who made it formal, but I feel like we saw ourselves on social media and kind of like what each other yeah. was doing and we connected. I, I was followed by the time Camille introduced us. Camille is um, color of autism. We were actually already following each other. So I was kind of aware and following your page and thinking, oh, this lady's really interesting. She has a you know, very different take. And it, it definitely caught my interest because what intrigues me is that you just don't talk about the good stuff. Yeah. You talk about, every, you know, and that's really important because if you get so hooked up on the abilities of the kids and the good things that, that, the, that the journey has shown us, which is lots, but you know, we also have to kind of show the hard stuff as well. And I love the fact that you do that. Thank you. And same, same. I think 
there is a true importance of keeping this journey positive. But sometimes when we don't involve the challenges, that prevents us Mm -hmm. from getting the services we need. Mm -hmm. It prevents our kids from fully thriving because those that don't live this life, if Mm -hmm. they don't know the full picture, they won't know how to be proper allies. So that's why we go about Yeah, that's why we go about it the way we do. So you amaze me, too. You are Mm -hmm. a fellow multi-hyphenate. Your jobs have jobs. I think maybe that's the Nigerian in you. Your jobs have jobs. (laughs) But I would love to talk to you about your journey, like the beginning, right before you became a mother. I, you are in the media and entertainment industry. Could you tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about what your career looked like before, your background, how you grew up, where you grew up, grew up in multiple places. So let's just start there. I was born in the UK, but raised first six years in Nigeria. My parents were both Nigerian. They never, they never relocated as immigrants to another country. We were, we were at Boarding school, actually. I went to boarding school at the age of six in England. Yeah, that was like my introduction to a more international world, I guess. But yeah, I was in boarding school at an early age. So obviously that has a huge effect on on the outlook of and how you're formed and you grow. But we were also privileged to come back most school holidays as well. But I always kind of liked the media and was at university that I kind of identified that I wanted to enter TV and film production. I did my master's in audio and visual production. And when I was done, I got hired. That was like throwing me in the deep end. I'd done some production stuff before in New York. I'd worked on some films in New York, you know, getting people coffee and doing driving people around <laughs> and all that uh, production assistant runner work. Um, both in um, America and in England. But it was Nigeria where I really got to really thrown in a deep end. And it was a great experience. And I ended up staying. And that's how I just, I ended up staying. Something that was meant to be just for three, four months. I ended up relocating um, back to Nigeria. And um, really just enjoyed the hard work. I'm not someone who kind of likes the the attention, like the red carpet side of that business. I'm the person behind the scenes. I just enjoy the work. I enjoy that kind of creative process or overseeing the creatives because I really didn't see myself as creative until recently. So I just got hired back to back, you know, and I ended up with a really good job at Mnet as a commercial manager, which um, took me to, you know, different African countries, but mostly to Johannesburg, but I was based in Lagos and worked on one of the Afrikaans channels. And I don't speak Afrikaans, which was interesting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was really, really fun. I wasn't married at that time. So I could really throw my weight into my work. And I ended up from there going to work for Obi Asika, who is still kind of like my mentor till today. Like he's just so awesome. And that, gave me more responsibility than I had. I worked with a lot of artists. And and what was great, I think, between those two jobs, I really got my my production chops and really understood 
the mechanics, understood about how to work within this environment because it's very, very challenging. So I was doing really well, so much so well that after uh, once my contract was up with Obi, I decided to start my own business and consult instead. So I was still doing some consulting work for them. And I ended up like producing a film that's now on Netflix, actually. I, I was um, heavily pregnant on that time. I was still working and stuff when I got married, but I slowed down, wasn't doing as much because I just felt it was really important. And I discussed it with my husband when we did have children, that first two years of their lives would slow down and be at home, mostly just be a homemaker. Because I felt and he felt that those first two years are so important in that being able to put those foundations into your child before you send them off to nursery or wherever you're going to send them. I don't know what anybody's learning, to be honest, before five in school, to be honest with you. But well, I just thought, okay, till two. Because here, that's like five, six months. They tell you, aren't you sending your child to nursery? I'm like, no, I'm keeping my child with me at home. What are they teaching them? I can't teach them at home. It was a real blessing to be able to do that. But obviously, with my second, by the time she was four and a half months is when we got the diagnosis of Down syndrome. So either way, I would have been forced to. I'd been forced to stay because after that is when we got the, because of the Down syndrome and the late diagnosis that we got the news that she was in heart failure. So she had cardiomyopathy, ASD, ABSD, everything you could think of. There was an issue. Like her left ventricle was was barely pumping, so they pretty much gave her a lifespan of another six months maximum, and we had to kind of figure out what to do and how to do it, and it was urgent, and that kind of changed everything. Walk us through those early days. What did you have to do, knowing that your daughter has these heart conditions, and that they were they're telling you that it's fatal? And they, she only has a couple months to live. What was your initial reaction? What was your husband's initial reaction? Mm. People close to you. Well, I think initially when we got that Down syndrome diagnosis, it came as a bit of a surprise because at that time, I mean, she looks a little bit more like she has Downs now than she did then. So she didn't look like she had Down syndrome. And Globally, when babies are born, there's certain criteria they automatically look for in all babies. And she she didn't meet anything that was worrying, you know. So it was missed at birth in Atlanta. And then when we passed through England, because I'm also British and passed through there just to make get her paperwork done and everything. And they didn't pick it up when we were going for her immunizations and checkup. Nobody picked it up. I mean, and nobody was hearing anything issue with her heartbeat or anything like that. So it kind of came as a shock because how how it actually happened to the diagnosis is that I was giving her some powder medication for malaria medication that's crossed into the powder for a baby and she began to choke. So luckily I knew uh, baby first aid, so I did her first aid. She was fine breathing you know, I was able to sort her out. But we went to the doctor, obviously, just to check her oxygen, check she was all right. They observed her for the day and then asked her to come back a week later. In that week later, I had I had some concerns that I had noticed, you know, in terms that she was still, I think we'd been back a few weeks, like about a month. 
you know, relocated back after, you know, giving birth. So she was about three months when we came back. And then this is at four and a half months. This was all happening. And I said, look, she's still kind of sweating profusely. I know like we were acclimatizing, but she can't still be acclimatizing. And she, you know, sometimes she chokes a lot. So I kind of said those concerns and the doctor kind of just observed her, looked her over and just told us that she wanted to test her for Down syndrome, not because anything that's indicating Down syndrome. But So I said, that's fine, go ahead. And it came back, you know, like five days later that that's what she had. So that was a shock because I didn't really know where that was coming from. And that was hard initially because I didn't, I knew of Down syndrome, but I didn't know anybody who had Down syndrome. I, I don't think I'd really seen more than a couple of people maybe in England had Down syndrome. So I didn't have any real point of reference. But that all went out the window when, you know, we did the echo because um, like 40 to 60 percent of um, those diagnosed have uh, heart issues, but not usually this bad. And that was a real shock. That was, I mean, I think I could have just dealt with the downs at the time because the way we were given the diagnosis was really good. I mean, she, the doctor, God bless her, the pediatrician was just like, it's not the end of the world it's all right it's not the end of the world and I'm like oh it isn't okay and she's like this is what you do next this is the kind of life she can have if you do these things now if you make sure to do this there's things you can do to ensure that she has a good quality of life and that's how our journey started so I always say to people like how you get that diagnosis is so important because unfortunately a majority of the people get it as if it is the end of the world And so that's the mindset that they're programmed with. And I try and tell people that's actually not true. Yes, it's difficult, but it's far from the end of the world. In fact, it's it's the beginning of a new world. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the doctor, the cardiologist, who is still Simone's main cardiologist to this day, he didn't sugarcoat it. He just, you know, I, I kind of suspected because... When he we were he started the echo, you know, it was like two minutes and then he put it down and he's like, I'm gonna need to put her to sleep. And I just knew when he said that, I'm like, if you need to put her to sleep, this thing cannot be good. But I said, Okay, fine. So he put her to sleep and it was about 30 minutes of torture for me. <laughs> just sitting there. But at the end, he now kind of explained everything and say, Hey, this is there's nothing we can do for her here in Nigeria. There's we cannot handle minor things yet but there's no facility there that can handle what she needs if you don't do anything he can't guarantee her more than six months wow and so like within a few days we bundled up went with my mom and her and we went to Atlanta and then what we thought would have been like three four months ended up being like three years Hmm. yeah so it was tough it was really tough you know what choice do I have this is a child that God gave me so I have to just find a way to navigate and we have so it was really challenging especially I I actually remember we landed in Atlanta we went home changed showered went to the hospital because we had an immediate appointment and they wouldn't let us leave they were like no you can't leave you've got to check her in right right now you know you know I thought we'd be at least okay we'll go back and forth it was set stuff no she's like you cannot go home this girl should not be at home. And that really kind of hit home that it was really serious. 
And so, yeah, that journey began to get her even well enough to have the surgery because they admitted us, moved us. You know, I was living in the hospital with her. They were like, she is not even well enough for this surgery. If we do the surgery now, she will die. Mm. So we had to yeah. get her, get her well enough even to make sure, give her the best chance. And for them, they talk about open heart surgery as if it's routine, you know. They're like, no, but the actual surgery routine, you know, it's, we do it all the time. I'm like, there's nothing routine about opening somebody's chest and doing walk to their heart. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like the, the period, in, the actual period we lived in the hospital. Obviously, after that, we go back and forth to hospital. But uh, actually, major you know, day while living with her in the hospital was actually only about six weeks, although it feels like it was a year <laughs> because you don't sleep. Um, you know, there's people coming in at like 3, 4 a.m. in the morning to wheel her to x-ray or to check vitals or medication. It's, you know, buzzing and beeping and they have to do something. So it was really hard. And at that time, I'm still pumping milk. Still pumping milk and freezing. They've got you just you just have to keep pumping and storing because she wasn't allowed to take anything pre-surgery. So it was post-surgery that then I'd have to retrain her how to feed. So she she was being fed by tube and that was really difficult. Once they transferred her over and you knew that time was getting closer and closer, it became really hard. You just kind of get in this zone that's almost like an outer body experience. You move automatically. You don't think too much about it you, because you don't even have the bandwidth. You're literally dealing with what is in front of you all the time. And I remember, like, I think it was the day before her surgery, just hearing this wail and screaming down the hall. And it was another mom had lost her, her, her child. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. So it was a lot to see, especially in the, in the um, ICU as well. And just to see small children, like small children, just there, like fighting for their lives, like literally fighting for their lives. And I, that, that made me kind of really respect nurses. And they have to see that and be able to process that and deal with that. And it also gave me perspective to understand that my own wasn't that bad, actually. <laughs> In the, when you're able to sit there and see what other parents and children are going through, how they're hooked up, and the battle they're going through, and talk to some of them, and you realize you're honest. It gives you a perspective and a wake-up call and just have, it really taught me to, in everything, try and find gratitude. Even when things are hard and stressful, it's still kind of find that gratitude, that half glass full literally someone literally next to you is having a worse time so who am i to to feel like woe is me you no, know no. yes you can grieve and yes you should grieve and you should think about the hurt and the pain and you do need to kind of go through that to process the that why me why us but you can't stay if you can't stay there you mentioned six weeks of baby girl being in the hospital every single yeah. day. You also mentioned three years. Did yeah. you mean three years of staying in Atlanta to monitor her? 
No, so this is the crazy, crazy thing, right? So you have the surgery, and for that surgery, they're like, it's routine, and then it's usually, you know, up to three months to, to recover because of the wounds, right? And you recover and everything, but she didn't. Like, her heart it was a great surgery, very well done. Uh, everybody till now, every, even if it's a new cardiologist, that did, everybody comments on how good her, they, they say the guy who did her surgery is an artist. <laughs> but so the, the surgery itself was a success, but it didn't change the outcome. Yes, the holes were fixed. Those kind of physical things were fixed, but her left ventricle was still like slow to pump. So her function wasn't better. And so she was on like six different medications. We couldn't go anywhere. They're like, you can't leave. You can't leave. You've got to stay here. So we ended up, we have a, a, a place there. My dad has a place there. So we ended up staying in, in you know, in dad's place in Atlanta. And we just literally had to do all the things they were telling us to do to keep her well, her medication. But at the same time, because she'd been, you know, so young and just been malaise in a bed for six weeks, obviously she had to do therapies. And the therapies didn't even have to do with the Down syndrome initially. It's just the fact that she spent as a baby during key stage of her life and her development. Um, and it's kind of a standard thing they do if, uh, you know, a child is going through this and spends that time in, in bed is that they have therapy. So once her wounds had healed, she started kind of everything grouped together because at that age, they don't really separate it out. So she had she was having like PT and OT rolled into one. And at the same time, we were just regularly seeing the cardiologist, regularly seeing the pediatrician. We had to see, you know, eye doctor, ear doctor, you know, geneticist, all those things. But the main thing was that, you know, we became regulars at the heart clinic and we're still friends till today. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it's, it's really difficult just to see because you have this idea in your head and now there's no end point so we couldn't plan we were just living in limbo that i can relate to when people say you're there's periods of this journey right that you can only plan so much mm -hmm. And the rest is truly, if you are a person of faith, leaving it up it's to up a to higher God, power. Man. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Leaving it up to God or else you will lose your mind. Yeah, you will lose yeah. Your mind. exactly. Um, I want to talk to you about family dynamics. So you, sure. baby girl, and your mom are sitting here in Atlanta. Where was your yeah. son? Where was your husband? Yeah. Did he come? How did that even, yeah. how did you even uh -huh. make that work for three whole years? That's not yes. easy. About six months after the surgery, with no change, they now started broaching the subject with me of a heart transplant. Yeah. Of which I was like, no, 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 no. They were like, well, if we don't see the heart function, you know, coming soon, we need to consider the heart transplant. So I agreed that we'd be moved about three months after that conversation and with no change, I agreed that we'd move to the heart transplant unit. So that's where we were having all our appointments. However, 
they were like, oh, okay, so we're going to give her another three months or another month or because we had monthly appointments, you know, another month, or they'll say another two months. And then we, we really have to do this. And I was like, every time I'd be like, come on, just give us one more month. I know she's going to kick a look at her. She's really good health. You know, she's trying. They're like, yeah, but her heart is only going to last for so long. And I was like, just give her more time. You know, she's a late bloomer. <laughs> so I was just trying to convince because I just knew. I just knew it wasn't our journey. I don't know. what I just knew that wasn't our journey. So about a year after the surgery, so that would probably be about 14 months after we had been there, but about a year after the surgery, saw a very small improvement. And I was like, yeah, you see? <laughs> but they're like, no, 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 it's not good enough where we're going to take you guys from the heart transplant list, but it's hope. So they said, okay, this buys you a little bit more time. Let's see. But if after three months, there is no dramatic change, then uh, we still have to go ahead with, you know, the heart transplant. But long story short, the next time it was my, it was very small again. But the time after that was like a huge leap in her function. And I was like dancing in the doctor's office and they, the guy was dancing. Too. <laughs> so it was, it was just a matter of giving her time to recover. That was just so amazing because I really didn't. I, I just I just had a feeling that it wouldn't be good. You know, the heart. I, I just don't think she would have made it. That's just my instinct. So in terms of family dynamics, after that time, the, so we now, a year and a half after all this American drama, they now said we could leave, but that we couldn't go back to Nigeria because she was still on two medications and so we I was like okay well we can go to Jan's right we can go to London got a place in London and went to London and that's where we were for the remainder of that time until they said her heart was functioning as normal and they they didn't even wean her off the medication and she was fine so family dynamics wise my husband is also unusually on Nigerian <laughs> he's the most He's, he, people are like I find one. I found one very fine Igbo man who is not like the typical Nigerian man. I said, "Well, so that's so good. Send up to me." Now. So, so he didn't bolt when we got diagnosed with Down syndrome. He didn't run away. He didn't abandon us. And I kind of took that for granted, knowing my husband. But as I found my feet in this journey and sharing with other people and other people sharing with me I began to realize it's a very unusual story for the man to stay around for the husband to stick around like it's why do you think that is like you and I have something in common yeah. there too because people I've had women literally as particularly African women come yep. up to me and say wow your husband stays so very yeah. similar to you why do yeah. you think that is why is there this sense of surprise well I think there's several layers to that. I think one, there's a cultural layer in our history in terms of understanding what a child, or how a child was born, what a child was to be, what the child was to look like. And any kind of deviancy from that meant that, you know, some someone had cursed you or some kind of spirit had 
messed with the wife or something during child pregnancy. So a child could just be a twin, right, and be exposed because they were twins. Because twins are regarded as they were regarded as um, what well, just just as evil. So there's kind of those elements in there, but also I think because it has a certain reflection on manhood. If you produce this substandard deficient child, that's a reflection on the man being deficient and not the true man. So there are kind of those very much kind of machismo elements in there. Those are real major, major factors because we're still very much in a patriarchal society. We're still very much strongman society you know just look at our politics it's all about the strongman the authority and so anything that kind of takes away that from that is kind of emasculating and that doesn't really bode well and so if someone has has this experience as a man because you've been programmed to think that way I mean not all men I'm just generalizing here obviously programmed to think that way and your reasons for being married, right, and committing to your wife are reasons that are not really emotive or not really about love and commitment and companionship, then it's not surprising that most men who have been programmed this way would would leave. That's why it's important that we do what we do, because we have to let people know that no this is no it's okay this is not bad mark on you being a man it's just something that has happened and to understand that these children still need their father but mothers abandon them too mothers abandon them too you know because there's a lot of pressure I, I joke about our Nigerian culture collectively, whether it be in the diaspora or not. Mm-hmm. I jokingly call parts of our culture the Instagram before Instagram. Yes. Because, yeah. and, I, and you know exactly what I mean by this. As much I can as give you a good you, example. Sure. I'll give you please a good do. example. Please do. So you see some, you know, guy dressed nicely. Ah, he's rocking one Range Rover. And he goes home and he's living in a BQ and sharing that Range Rover with three other people and they rotate it. So Monday, Tuesday, maybe that's when he gets it. The other one, Wednesday. So, and I'm not even, I'm joking, I'm not joking, <laughs> but this is what is happening. Yes, yes. And I, I blame our culture is very, generally speaking, very focused on success. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot, and, and it's one definition of success mm-hmm. it's having mm-hmm. certain type of education certain type mm-hmm. of career mm-hmm. certain type of home certain type of mm-hmm. spouse that includes certain type of children yeah so most definitely so it is common so when things aren't looking the way our society wants them to there's this immense pressure that some feel to make it look like that's happening even though it's not really happening and you, and you see that. And even when I launched this podcast, there are family members that reached out to me and said, Lola, are you sure you want to expose mm. yourself? And yeah, I, I husband, didn't have that. 
you're 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 lucky. I'm really blessed. Yeah. Yeah, you're lucky because yeah. it was like, are you sure you want to expose yourself? My husband and I had a conversation of, you know, people may come out and say, I'm a witch. I'm this. I'm this. It's 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 possible. People are yeah. not always it, it is, It's not only possible; it's plausible. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 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 So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for talking about it. I hope that, and we will get to your podcast. You're doing so many amazing things in this space. I hope that the work. (laughs) I hope the work you're doing. I hope the work that um, our mutual friend Camille is doing Mm -hmm. through the color of autism and Mm -hmm. the amazing work she continues to do. I hope that this breaks that down over time. Yeah. So that people just realize this is just another way of life. It's not anything that's wrong or something that is seen as horrible or destruction of any kind. It's just a different way of life. Yeah, because I just think it's so important to look at this family, family dynamic because you need support. There's nobody in this journey. Like if you think you're going to do this on your own, you're, you're, you're mistaken. Like this, Parenting is already wahala. So put the special need on top. You need support. So it's really unfortunate that so many people don't talk about it because you need help. And I'm not just talking financial. Yes, there's a financial element, but really you need that support, whether it's family, friends, you need to be able to ask for help. You need to engage them, let them know what's going on because so they even know how to even ask you because some will be looking and they want, but they don't know how to uh, uh, approach it. I mean, I was very blessed with my both sides, my in-laws and my own family. My sister-in-law, my children call her mommy. You know, that's, that's the kind of bonding we have. My elder sister, she says they're her children. That, you know, my, my dad is like the best grandfather ever. And he, and he just says, you know, he said to me, don't worry about, you know, let's just keep praying. Let's keep doing because the children are superstars. He said, Simone is, she is like this for a reason. That's what he said. There's a reason. She's a magical child. There's a reason that it's, that it's there. So she just, occasionally every few months, will give me a little pet talk, just, you know. Yeah. And he just, just loves them with everything. My mom loves them with everything. My stepmom, oh my goodness. So, my siblings, my husband's siblings, there's a whole village. My friends who have been forever friends, she's, she's one of them. My children are part of this literal village that is yeah, family, yeah. friends, school, because I'm another part of it is like when you send these children out into the world, my point of view is that you don't just send them and leave them. I'm on everybody's neck. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what they're doing. Let's collaborate what we're doing at home because it's not just you. It's also me and everybody else. So it literally does take all these factors, including the medical, you know, doctors or people that are in charge of her her care too. Everybody is kind of part of this nation to, to, to look after her and to ensure her the best possible life because she deserves it. The community is Mm -hmm. so so important the more you stay isolated the worse off it will be for your own mental health for your child's mental health 
you have to speak up. You have to speak up so that people can help you. You absolutely have to. Um, This is a good segue into you took what was happening in your life and you made something just absolutely beautiful out of it. You you. tell us about Simone's Oasis. Tell us about your multiple jobs within jobs. I would (laughs) love to know. I've self-diagnosed myself with ADD because there must, I think I have a problem. Because I, my brain doesn't stop. I can't, I can't concentrate for long periods of time anyway. But I'm always like, oh, hopping on hopping. So that aspect of me just fits right into this this journey. But it it all it all came from a place of desperation and need. To be honest with you, in 2018 was when we came back in the summer, and she was good. They allowed us. Um, it was amazing to be reunited as a family. Obviously, I'd seen my husband and my son during that time because they would come. My husband would come to America, you know, spend a few weeks, drop uh, my son, and then come back like a couple of months later, see him, pick him up and take him back because my husband's a homebody and he needed somebody who would be able to be home with him. So he's just like, no, I need I need my son with me. So we, we would kind of rotate our son. <laughs> <laughs> but we're connected we're best friends so you know it was great to come back and actually realize hey you know we're back we're a unit we can actually think a little bit about future like when I say future like at least we can plan six months ahead and the children settled down really fast everything settled down they were happy Simone started a wonderful she started a, a little crash nursery that her brother was at and they had been amazing. Talk about village. They have been amazing because they understood what was going on. So while I was away, they really just took extra care with them. And I'm still friends with them, with them now. Occasional pop-ins, just randomly. I send them the books, go do book readings and stuff. So it was really, it was really amazing to see how quickly they settled. But what happened is that I could see everybody being settled. I'm like, what about me? What do I do now? Like, you just realize, wait, this girl is okay now. And you start to ask yourself these kind of existential questions. And I had neglected myself for almost three years, wasn't thinking anything to do with myself. So then to actually be like, oh, wait, okay, now I've got to figure out what I'm doing with my life. That was a shock. My husband just told me to just take some time to really think about it. He was like, you know, you spent like almost three years killing yourself, three years killing yourself. Give yourself a break. Stop, you know, just stop and just take some time. Wait, listen. God will send you a message. That's what he said. He just said, stop, wait, listen. So I would just, okay, stop, wait, listen, stop, wait, listen. And one day I was just watching the children play. And Ugo helped her. Simone was strumming with toys, so he helped her with it. I was like, oh, that's interesting dynamic. And I kind of put, stored that away in my head. Then one day, he came to me and was really angry. He didn't understand why people were coming to the house to play with Simone and why he wasn't allowed to play. I'm like, what is this boy talking about? Like, honestly, what are you talking about? And I realized, oh, the therapist. So I now had to explain to him, no, no, these are therapists. What, what, why does Simone need therapists? Okay, Simone has Down syndrome. What's Down syndrome? Hey, four-year-olds, Down syndrome explanation. It didn't go well. So... 
I, I did a horrible job. So I thought, okay, children are visual. Let me go and look for some books, some videos, stuff like that. So we, we, we ordered some books and we watched some videos and that really helped. But I noticed that everything, there were no black children. There's no, there was nothing. I couldn't see any special need child with Down syndrome that was black. Even the ones I found, they were really sweet. And we shared them on our Amazon um, storefront as well. But they're just like one-offs. You can't then continue to grow with this character and identify with this character. So that got me thinking. And then I just thought of that incident of him kind of helping his sister and everything. And I just started to write a story. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to create a story for them that they can have to understand what their journey has, is, what this Down syndrome is, and, and her elder brother can really kind of understand what's going on. Because even today now, if I, he knows she has Down syndrome, but he's just like, it's Simone, it's annoying younger sister. It's like, whatever. But he understands the role of kind of being her protector and her guide. Um, but we spend a lot of time together one-on-one so that he understands that he is my child also and he's the number one child. And, he was my first child, so he has a unique place with me. And it's literally like I spat out my own child, my, myself in him, because he has the weird tics I have, the, the strange goofiness, all that stuff. He has it. So it's really weird to see. Plus, we look the same at the same at his age, but I showed him some pictures at the same age, and we look like the same person. I created this story, and I said, okay, well, he, he's just an emerging reader. It's going to be kind of hard for him to read it. Let me see if I can get some illustrations done I can't draw so I asked the company to help me I paid and I said look I want to do this can you do some illustrations and they did that and I took it to like a print store and printed it like brochure version and I printed like two copies or was it like four copies and I brought it home and they were so happy they they saw these things with the characters of them we're able to read the book. I mean, they still one of their, that first book is still one of their favorites. We still read it probably every week. And that's kind of how it started. And a friend who I didn't know had a son with Down syndrome eventually came around and told me, you know, and I found out that she had a son with Down syndrome. She, she saw the books. My son came up to her and was like, oh, auntie, see my book. And she looked at it. She was like, this is amazing. And she now cursed me out after that. So she was like, wait, so it's only you and your children that are going to be enjoying this thing. It's just you people, you know. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, there are a bunch of us out there who could, you know, would really like to get something like this. And that kind of got the ball rolling and got me thinking. I said, okay, so I would say my children are my muses because I observe them a lot. And with working with my daughter, you know, in observing therapists and then doing the work myself also at home music is was a real motivator and continues to be a real motivator so I thought okay maybe I can hire a producer or get a producer friends that I knew producers and stuff just said can we create some little song like because now I had written 13 of the Ugo and Simpson book series or today I've printed three from the series and one from the baby board book series um, but I've written 13 so I was like, oh, this is going to like need a theme song or something, something where the children can know that, you know, feel proud. So we created this song and that's how I just discovered that I knew I could write music and I didn't know I could write music. So we have about, I think, 12 or 13 songs now. One of them is 
I see a couple of them are used in school, but there's one particular, Nigeria 36 states, because we, we, we've been doing videos as well, because animation is expensive, so we kind of pace our videos. But this one is the one that, that the schools are using to teach children the 36 states of Nigeria, and I just think that's so awesome. awesome. So my son came home one day with homework, and I said, why are you watching Uga and Sim Sim now? Go and do your homework. He's like, mom, that is my homework. I was like, yeah, that's how I discovered they were using they were using it. So wow. it, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of a backwards journey in terms of business because you kind of you, you research your market, you look at all this, watch how you're going to do it. I just entered and now I kind of reverse <laughs> reverse doing it. So I realized, okay, Uga and Simpson is a brand, but what if I want to do other things? Let's 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 create this bigger brand, right? This like umbrella. And that's how we came Simone's Oasis because this journey because started because of Simone and Oasis because we wanted to be like somewhere of nourishment, a resource, like an oasis in the desert. We could be for, for, for people because what I realized is that this was just not a special needs journey. I have two kids. I have a, a black boy and I have a, a, a black girl with special needs. And I needed to meet most of them, both of their needs. But why did I have to separate that out? I mean, our life is not separate. We don't live a special needs life and then a neurotypical life. It's all mixed together. So I, I always say, you know, Simone's Oasis is about empowering the African child through entertainment because we, we want them to be able to not only see themselves, right? That representation is so important at such a young age at, at a foundational level but also begin to put into their minds that it's not just about receiving. It's not just about being passive. You can actively do this. If you want to tell a story or if you're looking for a story, not finding it, you don't have to wait for any adult to tell you to go and do it. You live in the 21st century. You can start writing now or illustrating now or taking videos now or taking photos now, whatever format you can tell a story. And if I can, in our stories, include talent that are neurodiverse and can include crew that are neurodiverse and characters that are neurodiverse, then I think that's more of an accurate portrayal of the world we live in, actually. And to get children understanding that and accepting of that at an early age, then it's not a big deal. I really don't feel all of this should be a big deal. So it's ha having that mind shift, shift for them. It's the, it's the adults that are the problem so you know part of what we do which is because our kids are not on our social media right so part of what we do on the social media is to really kind of identify the representation and identify the special needs aspect and that's why it's been really good to have a youtube channel because we can delve into some of that stuff for the adults on the youtube channel so i have i i created like a potty training format that a lot of people use both neurotypical kids and special needs kids. I kind of share some of the tools and things that we do with Simone or tips I've learned along the way. And it's free because this journey is expensive. So whatever I can create that and it can help somebody without them having to break the bank, especially here in Nigeria, that then that's my way of being able to share and, and give back for the parents angle. But if also they can be reading the books with the children, especially the first one, the what is Down syndrome, because it's through that book, the parent, 
you know, reading it to the emerging reader, the child, or doing story time, you know, at bedtime with the child, you're actually teaching the parent about Down syndrome, about differences. And I get a lot of feedback from parents who say, who, who are like, ah, please, oh, I want to embarrass myself here, oh, that that book, it was for me. <laughs> that the children really enjoyed it, but it was like an education for them. So that's been, uh, although it wasn't intended that way, that's been kind of a really great byproduct of it. And there's been this awakening these past two to three years with Black parents all over the world who are realizing that they are responsible for this shift. Not anybody out there who's going to do it for you. It starts at the home. So you have, you know, parents like me who are creating, who are writing for the first time these children's books, who have a message to say to their children and other children out there. And it's just really, really important. And it's kind of an exciting time to exist and have not only a black voice, not only like an African voice, but a Nigerian voice being heard. And it's an important narrative to counteract some of the BS about Nigeria that's out there to, to, to say, hey, you know, this is the first time globally ever in the world that you have a black character with them, you know, in a, in a, in a storybook series, in an animation. It's never happened. And that is a real disappointment to me. It's great, yeah, to be the first, but this is not the first I want to be. Really understanding the need for it and there needs to be more people doing it and encouraging people to take that that leap. So I always say, both to parents and to kids, if you don't see the story you want out there, you know, write the story yourself. Make the story yourself. You don't have to wait for anybody to do it for you. We've seen this in multiple areas of diversity. You've seen just where Nollywood was just 10 years mm-hmm. ago versus where it is mm-hmm. now. If you don't see yourself enough, you have mm-hmm. to create it on your own, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. be- because your media and entertainment um, related projects knows no bounds, there will <laughs> soon be a launching of a yes. podcast that will also yeah. chronicle your yeah. journey. So please yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it wasn't really a plan. I went to Africa Business Radio. They asked me to come. There's a presenter, media mogul, Titi the Dynamite. She's awesome. And she invited me onto her show, which is a book club, to talk about Ugwen Simpson, the books. And the, the the show, that episode was such fire that they kept me afterwards and, and the boss came afterwards and was like, We need we need to do something. Like this is this is not enough. We actually need to do something. So I left there about four hours later and we had figured out, okay, let's do the. I said, well, I'd love to do a special moms, you know, a, a podcast centered with with moms who have children with special needs. But it's not like a woe with me podcast. It's just gist chatting. So each episode has a particular subject and we gist. Sometimes it can get heavy. Sometimes it's stupid. But it's just having that space to chat. Yeah. So it's Special Moms Africa, real talk on special needs parenting. It launches, I don't know, I think they told me either later in December or the first week of January. I'm not sure, but it's launching like in the next month. And we have recorded four so far. We only just started last week and it's been fire, like magic happening. 
I think three of the four episodes, either the guests or one of the hosts who co-host with me cried because you're tapping. Yeah. Like you're tapping into some things that people haven't really talked about or people haven't really shared. And because we're kind of in a quiet space and because we're all on this journey, not everybody's on this journey that comes onto the show, but it means that for some reason, people are just a little bit more willing to share and be open. So it's been amazing. And each of my co-hosts, you know, there's a different dynamic, you know, Bicola's like, she has a daughter with uh, cerebral palsy and she's like the advocate champion and she's a lawyer and she's an author. She's written books for both adults and children. Obafe Kemi, she's a vulnerability and sensuality coach. So she has a daughter with autism. And she kind of through this journey found that element of herself. And I just thought that's something really interesting to bring because we as special needs moms, but even moms generally, generally we feel that we have to be super women. And I don't like it when people call me a super woman. I actually, I I, I stay, I stay aware from that. Really dislike that label of super woman. And it's something when someone says that, I'm like, no, I reject it. (laughs) so it was really interesting to to bring that vulnerability and sensuality part because obviously having diagnosis affects marriage affects intimacy affects so many things and then Yemisi she has a son with down syndrome she is the one I told you who was like gave me a hard time when I'd written the books and she was like it's only you (laughs) and she's uh, an actress and a tv presenter but she's also a um a baker as well on the side. She loves, she makes amazing cookies. But it's all these different elements, right? That kind of make the bond and make the show. So I'm really kind of excited to get more episodes in the can. I've never done a podcast, so it's a learning journey for me because I'm producing it along with Africa Business Radio. Oh, I love so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So just understanding, I put my producer hat on, but I've never produced a podcast. So it's a bit different. And I'm open to learn. Like people look at me and they always say, "Oh, I'm too big for this." I'm, too, I'm not. I'm not too big. I still go to pop ups and sit on a table and sell my books. I'm not too big for anything. I'm always open to learn, learning, and obviously, getting older, you have to. And world changing and technology changing, you have to at least try and know something. Yeah, and then the other podcast, totally excited about, is called Represented Storybooks and More for African Kids, and that one is I'm the, I'm the host, but I will have rotating co-hosts who are children, including my son. So yes, we have about five, and it seems like every parent now is asking for my for their child to be a co-host, but I really kind of want to. That. Yes, because it's really important to include them in this process. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. It's, it's, it's so important to, to under, for them to understand it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the genesis of, of it all. And just engaging them and finding what it's like for them. So it's, it's, it's something that was really important for, for children to be able to have an actual part of it. Like be yeah. part of it. Yeah. Uh, my son is a part of my production. Yeah. At the end of every, all the ending credits and just, 
the confidence he's gained from this process and just the yeah. joy he has. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. So yeah, you continue to, you continue to do the thing, as they say, you do the thing. You do the thing. I've gone too far now to turn back. So at this point, you know, at this point, I'm just like, okay, I need to, do a round of in, of in, of investment or round of funding. Yeah. I need to do a round of crowdfunding. I need to get some sponsors on. Like these are now the conversations that are happening. <laughs> I've got to send out proposals, have meetings, and I have to just get out there. You know, I've been such a homebody, and COVID hasn't helped. That yeah. um, I've got to remind people that I exist in this in the in the industry here. So, so and that's happening. So let's see. So we know that Special Moms Africa podcast yeah. is launching. So we really want to make sure it was the Africa so people could understand mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this story hasn't been told. This story yeah. hasn't been talked about. And it's yeah. time that we gave voice to it. Um, it's not just about the black voice, it's about the African voice. Those um, those who are interested, please check out this podcast. I know it's going to be great. Great, Aspire. a rich, aspire. <laughs> new rich perspective in a way. A, a lot of the time, this narrative is spoken through one particular lens. The children that we talk about in this advocacy space tend to heavily lean male and then heavily lean white. So the more rich, diverse perspectives we have in this space, a more holistic picture we'll see of this journey. And you are... You are one of the women, the pioneers making it happen, making it happen. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe. If you are interested in the genesis of the podcast, particularly the reasons why this podcast came to be, check out season one in its entirety. I've also decided to share parts of our story in written form through a monthly column titled the Caregiver's Chronicles. If you're interested, you could check it out at psychcentral.com. That's psychcentral.com, a division of Healthline Media. You can also follow us on social media at Not Your Mama's Autism on Instagram and at Not Your Mama's Autism on Facebook. See you soon. Not Your Mama's Autism podcast is hosted and written by my mom, Lola Dada Ali, and it's also co-written and produced by me, Fella Ali. My dad, little sister Alero, and I are all occasional contributors. My dad, Tosin Ali, also helps produce sometimes. Big thanks to my aunt, Bolane Williams Ali, who did our graphic design. See you guys soon.